What do we need to really live? It's, it's a huge question. There's lots of answers out there. If you just go into any good bookstore, you're going to find a hundred answers to that question. What do we need to know to really live? But I think there's some things that everybody agrees on. First of all, everybody agrees that we all want to live life with a big capital L. The good life, the abundant life. Crew calls it real life. Jason just said that Albanians in Boston call it a better life. We all want that. We're wired to want that, and we pursue it. We all agree on that. Secondly, we all agree that pursuing that real life in this messed up world is very hard. Our bodies don't work the way they were supposed to. Our minds don't work the way they're supposed to. Relationships, even the environment works against us. And this has been true for a very, very long time. And then we all agree that there are certain things you need to know to really live. But here's where our worldview affects what things we think we need to know to really live. Some of you who are a little older might remember about 30 years ago, there was a book written by a pastor named Robert Fulgham with the folksy title, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in kindergarten. What a nice thought. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. It sounds a lot like everything my grandkids need to know. And that's nice folksy wisdom, but it, it lacks punch. It's not going to get you through the really hard times. So there's other voices out there and other answers that are a little edgier. Things like Realize people don't care as much as you think. Do not commit yourself to anyone. Better to be arrogant than to be weak. Now, those things have more punch, but they lack wisdom, and they lack grace. So this morning, can we all be very thankful for the Bible? The Bible tells us all that we need to know to really live. It tells us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In just a minute, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to see four things that we need to know. So let me tell you what those are before we turn there. First of all, am I a little loud? Am I okay? Okay. First of all, we need to know the goal of life. Second, we need to know the meaning of faith-fueled effort. Third, we need to know the diagnostic power of the written word, the Bible. And fourth, we need to know the saving grace of the living word, Jesus Christ. Now, before we turn to Hebrews 4, let me just say a word about what it means to know things. Often in our culture, knowledge simply means I mentally agree with you. So, I just read those four things. You might say, well, I agree with all those. I know those things, but biblical knowing is different. Biblical knowing means I'm actively thinking about it. I'm wrestling with it. I am imagining what that would be like. I am being moved in my heart by those things. I am speaking those things. I am living those things, and I am giving those things away to other people. Now, obviously, I can't make you know anything that way. 
And you can't just decide to know things that way. We are absolutely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. So before we turn to Hebrews 4, let's pray right now. Father, there are amazing, wondrous truths in Hebrews 4. But Lord, we ask you right now that you would take those truths and captivate our hearts, that you would liberate us from our selfishness and our blindness. We pray that you would educate us with the truth that sets us free. We pray that you would obligate us with love and that you would activate us by the power of your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we pray this, Father, for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Hebrews 4, and we're going to read the whole chapter, 16 verses. And again, we're going to look at four things we need to know to really live. Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished <clears throat> from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account." Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Four things. Number one, if we want to really live, we must know the goal of life. 
Now, the Bible tells us the goal of life in a number of different ways. <clears throat> John says it's eternal life. Paul says it's glorification. Peter says it's becoming partakers of the divine nature. The writer of Hebrews uses a different description, and he says the goal of life is Sabbath rest. And you might be thinking, say what? The goal of life is a never-ending Sunday, a really, 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 really long church service? That doesn't sound so good. But I think as we look at Hebrews 4, this description of Sabbath rest will be increasingly attractive. So the goal of life is to enter God's Sabbath rest. We know what the Sabbath is, Sunday, and we know what rest is, but what is this concept, this larger concept of Sabbath rest? Now, if we're going to understand this, we must connect this Sabbath rest in Hebrews 4 to two previous events that are alluded to in this passage. And so we're going to spend just a little more time on this first one because it's a rich, complex concept, and I think it's extremely important. So we need to connect Sabbath rest, first of all, with God resting from His works on the seventh day of creation, and secondly, with Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land where they would rest. So in Genesis 2-2, it says, On the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He has done. Now this, brothers and sisters, is not just telling us about God's rest. This is God's original purpose for us, His people. His purpose was for us to enter into and enjoy His rest, His joy and fulfillment in Himself and in His creation. That was God's original intention for His people, that we would enter into the joy and fulfillment of God Himself and of His beautiful creation. Then, later on in the Bible, in Joshua 21, we see the historic fulfillment, or at least partial fulfillment, of God's purpose. When Joshua was going to lead the Israelites into the promised land, and we read in Joshua 21, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side just as He had sworn to their fathers. So again, we have God's original intention of entering into His Sabbath rest, and then we have this partial historic fulfillment in the story of Joshua leading Israel into the promised land. So in Hebrews 4, 8 through 10, this brings God's seventh-day rest and Joshua's promised land rest together and then extends it into a larger concept of Sabbath rest for us to experience in the presence. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So once again, we need to keep three biblical things together in our minds. God resting on the seventh day, Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, and then what the writer calls a Sabbath rest, which is a presently available, gospel-centered rest. 
So what does this Sabbath rest entail? First of all, it's clear from the passage, it entails rest from all our enemies. Again, Joshua 21, the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. So in this passage in Joshua, we see that rest here meant victory over all their enemies with the understanding, with the knowledge that those enemies would never rise again. Now, what does that have to do with us today? We are not with Joshua on the brink of conquering some physical land. But pastoral theology has always spoken about three enemies that you and I all face. The enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what does the New Testament say about rest from these enemies? Well, let's talk about the world. In John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Can I get an amen? Yes, we experience tribulation. But take heart, cheer up, he says. I have overcome the world. Jesus is promising us rest from the enemy of the world. How about the flesh? Romans 6.6, 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul says in the gospel, God gives you a measure of rest in this life and then finally perfect rest from all the dark impulses of your selfish, corrupt heart and all your evil deeds. Rest from the flesh. And then the devil in Romans 16, 20, Paul again says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So once again, Paul says there's a day coming when you will have ultimate rest from the temptations and accusations and attacks of the devil. So through the gospel, we have rest from our three enemies. And this Sabbath rest, this gospel rest, has a past, a present, and a future tense to it. Past tense. It means we can right now rejoice together, as we have been in song, that Christ himself has already won the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's past tense, and we can rejoice in that. It means this week you can step out in faith, fight the good fight of faith in dependence on the Holy Spirit against the, uh, the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's present tense. And it means we can look confidently into the future when Christ returns, when we will share with Him in the overcomer's feast and the victor's spoils. So Sabbath rest means rest from all our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It also says... We have rest from our works. And again, I believe there's a present tense rest from work and a future tense. I said this was a complex concept. Now, not all commentators agree that the writer of Hebrews 4 is talking about a present rest from works. Some of them say if we see that there, we're just reading Paul and justification by faith into this passage and it doesn't really belong there. But I think if we look carefully, we can see there is a present tense rest from works. Look at verses 7 through 10. 
Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now listen to this. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So clearly here, this Sabbath rest is for today, not just the future. It's for all those who are God's people through faith in Christ. And it means an immediate ceasing from your works, not just a future ceasing from your works. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. I think if you put all this together, there is a rest from our works that we enter into today, not just in heaven, when we believe in the gospel. Now, what this present tense rest entails, rest from works, I'm going to let two commentators give us an understanding. First of all, from the present, we have Al Mohler, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, and this is what he says about rest. We no longer have to live our lives trying to prove our righteousness before God. Instead, we rest from that labor because Christ has already proved that righteousness on our behalf. And then from the past, the Puritan, English Puritan John Owen says the same thing. He says, this rest consists in several things, including, quote, peace with God in the free and full justification of believers from all their sins by the blood of Christ. So there is a present rest from trying to earn, work, deserve, be good enough for God because we rest in the work that Christ has already done. But there's also a future rest from our works, and I think that's more the emphasis of Hebrews 4. In verse 4, he says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Just as God rested from all his works on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but to admire and enjoy all his handiwork. So there, come, there will come a day when we finally lay down all our labors, all our toils, all our burdens, all our sufferings, and enjoy an eternal Sabbath. And notice that I said we will enjoy it. Because I know for some of you, because of your backgrounds, the idea of Sabbath or Sunday conjures up distressing memories. It might conjure up memories of boring church services, followed by enforced naps or quiet time, and no play. And if, and if that's your past experience, you might be saying, give me any day but Sunday. And please don't make Sabbath a picture of heaven. That's not attractive to me. But again, I want to encourage you. Your past experience of Sunday was not a valid experience of what God intended the Sabbath to be. He meant the Sabbath to be a delight. 
and your past experience is certainly not a good picture of what heaven will be like. Eugene Peterson, who gave us the message paraphrase of the Bible several years ago, wrote an article on, on the Sabbath that I found very helpful. And he said, the Sabbath is essentially a day for two things, to pray and to play. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? To pray and to play. To pray, not just to say prayers, but to actually have fellowship with the God who is the lover of your soul. Any true believer, that's a delight to put aside all our other work so that we can spend time together and alone loving God, to pray and to play. The word recreation is literally recreation. So we cease from our labors to do things that rejuvenate us, that, that, that give us a sense of life and, and joy. C.S. Lewis famously said, one of his most famous quotes, that in heaven, joy is the serious business of heaven. So the Sabbath rest is a beautiful picture of this opportunity together to pray and play. Now, as a practical application, just one more thing about this Sabbath rest. This image of Sabbath rest, I think, is especially precious to those who right now are weary, burdened, harassed, and just overwhelmed by life. Maybe you're a mother with several small children, and, and, and Sabbath rest, that sounds pretty good. Or maybe you're a father working long hours, Maybe two jobs to provide for your family. Rest sounds pretty good. Perhaps you're doing ministry that's really hard and seems unappreciated. Maybe you're dealing with chronic suffering. To all these people, Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, rest, that's a beautiful thing, and that's a picture of the goal of life. So God's goal for your life is a present rest from all forms of self-salvation by simply trusting in Jesus. And then it's a future rest from sin and suffering by faithfully following Jesus. I said we'd spend a little more time on that first one. Second, we need to know the goal of life. Second, we need to know the meaning of faith-fueled effort to enter that rest. Notice in verse 1, there's a dynamic here of faith-fueled effort. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Two things here. First of all, don't fail to reach it. That's effort. But secondly, we believe in order to enter that rest. That's faith. So which is it? It's both. It's faith-fueled effort. We see the same thing in verse 11. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, there's a paradoxical comment or a paradoxical concept strive to rest. That doesn't sound right. It sounds like I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to try really hard to go to sleep. 
Well, the very act of trying keeps you from sleeping. So what does this mean? How does that work? Strive to enter. I think it means faith-fueled effort. We strive to believe a couple things. First of all, we strive to believe the gospel, and as I said before, rest in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And you say, well, that's easy. Just stop trying to save yourself. It's not easy. We are wired in our flesh to want to contribute something to our salvation. And we can't. We've got to lay all that down. It means in order to be saved, you have to let go not only of your badness, you have to let go of your goodness. You have to let go not only of your sinfulness, but your righteousness that you've been performing for the wrong reason. There's an old hymn that says this, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. That's not as easy as it sounds. It, it takes radical humility to let go of everything and to be accepted and forgiven simply on the basis of what Christ did. And only the gospel can give us that radical humility. And then from that secure place of acceptance and belovedness that we call our justification, we strive also to grow in Christ-likeness, which we call our sanctification. And that's not easy either. either. Here's how John MacArthur describes our sanctification. Discipleship entails a life of total self-denial, a humble disposition toward others, a wholehearted devotion to the Lord alone, a willingness to obey His commands in everything, an eagerness to sense Him even in His absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing He is well pleased. Does that sound a little daunting? How does this work then? How do we strive to enter this rest without falling into self-righteousness and then either pride or despair? I think Paul gives us a clue in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Listen to these verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling faith-fueled effort. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what Paul is saying is we can work and strive to be more like Christ because number one, we believe Christ has already worked for you and has provided His righteousness for you. And secondly, because even as you strive, you know God is already working in you to provide the motivation and the power to do that. So let me, let me give you a little illustration here that helps me understand what striving and resting might look like together. It's not a perfect illustration, but it, it, it helps me see how there can be striving and resting at the same time. When our son Neil was in eighth grade, he was a small kind of scrawny kid Loved basketball. He was, he was a decent basketball player. And the coach of the high school, a friend of ours, approached him in the spring of his eighth grade year and said, Neil, I want you to play on the varsity next year as a freshman. In fact, I want you to start. Now, just, in, just so you don't 
think I'm just bragging about Neil's basketball prowess, you need to know that next year's basketball team didn't look very good at all. It was like five guards. There were no big people and there were no obvious stars. So the coach decided he was going to do a complete running game. Press, fast break. Fast break, press. And he was just going to try to run the other teams off the court. And Neil was... He was small and scrawny, but he was fast and he was scrappy. So in the spring of his eighth grade year, Neil started practicing with the big boys. And at first, the high school kids were not having this, and they wouldn't even pass him the ball. And the coach finally just blew the whistle, stopped the practice, and he said, look, Neil is on the team. He is going to play with you. You need to pass him the ball. So they finally started doing that. So fast forward to the next year. Coach is running this, this fast break press kind of offense and defense. Neil is on the team. He knows he's on the team. He's not on probation. He's not trying out. And the team uh, increasingly accepts him. And from that place of resting in a secure place on the team, he knew the coach was for him, would work with him. I think he even knew the coach loved him. From that place of rest, Neil worked hard, as did the whole team. And Neil got better, and the team got better, and they actually did pretty decent by the end of the season. And so from that place of rest, he was able to strive. Now, our former pastor, Kevin DeYoung, said it this way in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness. He said this, we have rest in the gospel, but never rest in our battle against the flesh and the devil. So I think that means we can rest in Christ, and from that place of rest, we strive to grow in Christ's likeness, and Christ's likeness then brings even more rest and peace to our soul. So that's the second thing we need to know. We need to know what it means, faith-fueled effort to enter the Sabbath rest. Third, we need to know the diagnostic power of the written word, the Bible. Now we're kind of shifting metaphors, and we're, we're going to be talking more of, of curing our soul as a metaphor for sanctification. And you know that any kind of cure is always dependent on an accurate diagnosis. If you get the diagnosis wrong, there could be trouble. So if you go to the doctor, and he or she doesn't correctly diagnose that you just had a heart attack or that you have breast cancer, or colon cancer, uh, or appendicitis, it could be deadly. And it's just as true when we're talking about a cure for the soul that it absolutely depends on an accurate diagnosis. And again, there are many, many, many people out there willing to weigh in on what's wrong with us. Everybody's willing to diagnose us. And so some people say, well, what's most deeply wrong is your brain chemistry is messed up or you have inner wounds from childhood, or you suffer from low self-esteem, or learning disabilities, or negative self-talk, or bad role models, or lack of nurturing, or past trauma or, or abuse, social awkwardness, inferiority complex, maybe, maybe a little more modern, gender dysphoria. Now, many of these things are seeing something important that is certainly influential, but no secular diagnosis goes deep enough or sees clearly enough to really cure our souls because of what theologians call 
the noetic effects of sin. That's just fancy language for the fact that sin affects our thinking as much as anything else. Sin causes futile thinking, darkened understanding, willful ignorance, and hardened hearts. So we can't even trust our thinking apart from God's grace and, and apart from His Word. So what do we do when all the so-called soul doctors out there who are diagnosing us are all sick themselves? What do you do? It reminds me of that passage in the book of Revelation where the angel says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? We might say, who's worthy, who's competent to correctly diagnose and cure what ails us? And the answer is, only the wonderful counselor is. And the way he diagnoses us is through the true diagnostic manual of the Bible. Look again at verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible alone goes deep enough and sees clearly enough because it is the written word of God himself. And God sees everything comprehensively. He interprets everything accurately and he evaluates everything infallibly. This word is living and active. God himself is the living God and so His words are living and powerful. God's words always accomplish what He intends. And again, we see that if we go back to Joshua, chapter 3, listen to this. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. Joshua is saying, the words that I'm speaking to you right now, the words of the living God, it is those words that reveal that he is with you, and it is those words that reveal that he will without fail defeat your enemies. We see the same dynamic in Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word that goes out of my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word always accomplishes His purposes. So God's Word is living and active. You can't say that about any other book in the universe. But it's also sharper than a two-edged sword that pierces right through to soul and spirit and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Brothers and sisters, this is the accurate diagnosis that we need to really live. There is no other diagnostic that cuts all the way through to the thoughts and intentions of the heart because no other diagnostic even wants to. C.S. Lewis said the, the heart is a zoo of lusts. 
Nobody wants to look at their own heart. When you look at your own heart, you see these ugly, creeping things trying to break out of their cage and take over. Whether it's an individual or a psychological theory, they all leave the heart out of it because no one wants to look at it. But the Scripture, with infinite wisdom, we could even say ruthlessly exposes not only our wrong behaviors, but our heart-ruling desires that lead to those wrong behaviors. Desires for success and control. Desires for intimacy and comfort and appreciation. It exposes our false beliefs about God and about ourselves and others and about how life really works. And it exposes our overmastering fears of loneliness and failure and dependence and a thousand other losses. Now, one commentator says, Scripture is like a scalpel that God uses to perform spiritual surgery. And that's not a bad idea, it's kind of a modern idea, the surgeon uses a scalpel. That would be hard enough because nobody really wants to go under the knife, no one wants to have surgery. But actually, Hebrews doesn't say that God's Word is like a scalpel. It says it's a two-edged sword. We're not used to thinking about a sword as a surgical instrument, unless it's like on the battlefield where, where you just might have to hack off a limb in order to save the person. This is not something that we're used to thinking about. God may just as well hack off a limb as make a pre precise incision when He's trying to cure our souls. At least that's the way it feels sometimes, doesn't it? And it's perfectly consistent with what Jesus said. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, He doesn't say make a small incision and do something. He says, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, don't make a small incision, hack it off. Radical surgery to heal radical depravity. And then just so we don't miss the point of God's relentless pursuit of our holiness, and our happiness. The metaphor shifts here from a two-edged sword to become like a police helicopter in a neighborhood searching out some bad guy who's running loose. And it's also the police on the ground beating the bushes and searching all the hiding places. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can run from God, but you can't hide. Not from God. No person and no sin escapes His sight. And God is relentlessly committed to having our hearts and curing our sin-sick souls. And He uses the diagnostic precision and the power of a two-edged sword of the Bible to accomplish it. Now, let's be honest. If, if we ended here, that would, be, that would be kind of daunting. It would be almost too much to bear. But there's one more thing we need to know, the most precious and the most important. The fourth thing we need to know to really live is we need to know the saving grace of the living Word, Jesus. How could we live and move and have our being in the presence of the all-holy, all-seeing, all-knowing God if it all depended on us to enter that rest. Once again, let's look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. I'll ask it again. How could we bear to even attempt the Christian life to hear God, to fear God, to strive to enter His rest unless this all-seeing, all-evaluating judge of the universe sat upon a throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, please don't ever take for granted that the Holy One sits on a throne of grace. And it's all because of the one who sits at His right hand, Jesus Christ, the great high priest who has passed through the heavens with a perfect sacrifice. Do you appreciate the preciousness, the wonder, the all-glorious beauty of the throne of grace? We have a great high priest who has passed not just through the temple veil, but passed through the heavens with a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. He cried out, it is finished. Therefore, hold fast your confession of faith in Jesus. We have a sympathetic high priest who fully understands our weaknesses, physical and other weaknesses. He feels those weaknesses. He reaches out to us in those weaknesses. He does not look down his nose in disgust at us in our weaknesses. He does not pull away from us in frustration because of our weaknesses. He does not rebuke us for our weaknesses. He sympathizes with them. And it gets better. We have a great high priest who was tempted in every way you and I have been yet without sin. Do you understand that Jesus loved you so much that He came the infinite distance from heaven to earth and entered into the very depths of your experience with fierce temptations? All kinds of them, sexual temptations. Some of you despair that you'll ever be free from those, but Jesus experienced them at their very depth. Emotional temptations. Some of you are tempted to find escapes, maybe even into drugs or alcohol. Do you know that Jesus on the cross was tempted to dull his pain with a mind-altering and body-numbing drug, but he refused it? He was tempted to give in to selfish frustration and anger, but he refused it. He was tempted to doubt God, just like all of us, but he refused it. He never gave in. Jesus is the literal fulfillment of what David wrote about in Psalm 62. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Jesus is the literal fulfillment of power and steadfast love, which includes complete understanding and sympathy for our weaknesses. And the writer says, therefore, therefore, let us then with confidence, not with your tail between your legs, not with your eyes on the ground because of your shame. Let us with 
confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give us humble confidence. So, we have this gracious invitation to draw near to God in Christ every hour. That's why we sing that hymn, I need thee every hour. I need thee every half hour. I need thee every quarter hour. I need thee every five minutes. And because of that, we can go to the throne of grace to find two things we cannot live without and we cannot find anywhere else. Mercy for our failures and grace to help us in time of need. Because of Jesus Christ, the throne of judgment is now a throne of grace, and therefore you can step out today and tomorrow in trust and obedience. You can dare and risk. You can fall and get up again. You can stumble and still keep your bearings. You can hope and love and forgive and serve and witness even on your hardest day because we have continual access to the throne of grace. It would be one thing to be taken to Niagara Falls, and there's a tightrope between Canada and New York, and someone says, you need to walk that tightrope. That would be paralyzing fear. And they say, you better be careful. You better hope against hope. You do not stumble, because it's a really long way down. That's the way some of us feel about our Christian life. One slip, one mistake, and I'm toast. But what if there was a safety net right underneath the tightrope? It would still be scary, but it would be a whole different experience. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is your safety net. The throne of grace is your safety net because underneath your life are the everlasting arms. Once again, Al Mohler says, Christians have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, atones for sins, and intercedes for us before the Father. Jesus, our intercessor, identifies with us because he experienced in every respect the same temptations that we experience. Therefore, we can come before the throne of God every day as well as on the last day with confidence because we know Christ mediates for us before the Father. So in closing, let me summarize. What do we need to know to really live? We need to know that the goal of life is Sabbath rest. Rest from our enemies and rest from all our works and an ultimate Sabbath rest of enjoying God in the new creation forever. So let me ask you a question. Is that the goal of your life, really? Is that what you're aiming at? Secondly, we need to know the meaning of faith-fueled effort to enter that rest. Will you strive this week to trust Christ, to treasure Christ, and to obey Him? Third, we need to know the diagnostic power of the written word to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart so that our souls can be cured. I'm not going to ask you if you're reading your Bible, because I know many of you are, but let me ask you this. Are you allowing the Word to pierce and discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart so that God can cure your soul? And finally, 
most of all, we need to know the saving grace of the living Word who offered a perfect sacrifice, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who was tempted in every way, who grants mercy for our failures and offers grace to help us in every need. And right now, right this moment, even as I'm speaking, is sitting at the right hand of the Father on the, at the throne of grace and is interceding for every one of us, every one of you who have trusted in Christ. Jesus Christ is interceding for you, and the Father is bending down to hear carefully what He says. And that same Jesus will not stop interceding until every one of us is safe at home in the Father's house. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment of silence right now, would you hear our silent prayers as we think about what really is the goal of my life? Am I, am I allowing faith to fuel my effort in sanctification? Am I allowing the Word to really discern my heart? And am I living close to the throne of grace? So hear us, Lord, as we pray silently. Lord, there's much that was spoken today. Would you take these words, and especially the words of, of Hebrews 4 itself, and would you bring them back to memory this week? Would you give us hearts that long for your Sabbath rest? Would you give us hearts that rise up in faith with the effort needed to put off sin, and to seek Christ. We pray that your word would be that sharp two-edged sword and that you would truly cure us of what most deeply ails us. And I pray that we would live near to the throne of grace, needing you every hour, and that we would call on you for mercy as we fail and grace when we need wisdom and strength. And we pray, Lord, that this would be a week of of victory and rest over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we pray that you would, you would gain great glory in our lives. We pray all this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.